Uh, you're very welcome to the um, third and last in our series on the Olungon scribes. Um, I must be introducing myself, but I'm going to just say you all, I think most of you know who I am if you don't actually personally know me already. So um, I've been here quite a long time. I worked in other libraries before that um, <clears throat> and um, I uh, have spoken and written on a number of different facets of the collections here. So um, this one is one my latest uh, foray into the collections. And of course, I should just say that it was at the original um, behest of uh, Professor Podrick um, O'Makoin in Cork, who um, the Professor of Irish who held a conference on the Olungoins at the end of August, at which I was honoured to be a speaker. Um, and it's in connection with that conference that we have our exhibition here, which will run into the middle of next week, in case you haven't had a chance to look at it. And um, this is why we have this lecture series as well, in association with UCC. So without more ado, <clears throat> I'm going to um, start my paper, which is Scribing for Ireland, the Olungon Family and the Royal Irish Academy. And I would just first of all say that the paper will focus mainly on Joseph Olungon, who was employed by the Academy and about his relationship with the Academy. But I will touch on the broader connection of the Olungons with the Academy through the collections. So, first of all, in, uh, I also want to start by positioning Olongon in the Academy of the time. So, in December 1865, which is 150 years ago this December, when Joseph Olongon was appointed Academy scribe, he arrived in an academy which had not long settled in to its Dawson Street premises. From shortly after its foundation, in 1785, until the early 1850s, the Academy had been quartered at Navigation House, 114 Lower Grafton Street, the present-day site of American Apparel, and that's the building on the left. Um, they were next-door neighbours to the Royal Dublin Society, but with the assistance of the administration of the time, the Academy transferred to Northland House, Dawson Street, around 1850 or so. The house was taken on a long lease. The move was necessitated by the burgeoning collections of books and antiquities which filled the navigation house premises to capacity. Northland House was, in 1850, still a detached townhouse, as shown here, four storeys over basement, extended over the following two years by the Board of Works, whose architect Frederick Villiers Clarendon designed a galleried museum room, now the reading room, and a three-storied library room here, now the meeting room, to house the collections. And just take note of the person here on the right, who is um, J.T. Gilbert, John Thomas Gilbert, the librarian of the Academy for over 40 years. I'll mention him in a little while. He's a key player in all of this story. 
Um, apart from collections bequeathed, donated or purchased by raising subscriptions, in 1861, the Crown franchised the Academy the right to treasure trove. This brought in even more objects to the museum collections, which even by the early 1850s, 60s, had been described as full to overflowing. The library was growing apace also. In 1867, this is just after Olungon came, the Halliday collection of manuscripts, books, and especially pamphlets, over 35,000 of these, and the receipt of Petrie's collection of antiquities occasioned another big move, and the entire first floor of the house was turned over to the museum so that the pamphlets and other items could be accommodated on the, on the previous museum gallery, i.e. the gallery in the reading room. On the first floor, a tea room and drawing room were merged to form the long room shown here. And the council room, a smaller room at the front of the house, was fireproofed and secured to become the gold room where the great gold collections were displayed. There you see. This was the Academy of the Antiquities Men. George Petrie, William Wilde, Samuel Ferguson. Petrie was instrumental in garnering antiquities, but also manuscripts for the collections, for example, the Annals of the Four Masters. Wilde played a key role in the design of the museum, the arrangement of objects, and he compiled the catalogue, no mean feat for a man who was a working ophthalmologist and surgeon running a busy city hospital. Petrie died in January 1866, Wilde lived until 1871, and Ferguson, with his passion for Oam stones, became the driving force in the museum. The other key person for most of this period was Edward Cliburn, assistant secretary, later museum curator and assistant librarian, and he lived in the academy from 1839 to 72. I just have a quote here from the Bicentennial History. If the 1860s was a decade of intense acquisition and activity, the 1870s was one of anxiety in that there were moves afoot to form a national museum to which the collections would eventually be transferred in 1890. And there were tensions between the Academy and the Royal Dublin Society. The Academy was also regularly obliged to apply for an increase in the annual government grant. Now, on the other hand, apart from the antiquities men, there were the Irish scholars, men such as James Henthorne Todd, Charles Graves, Ferguson again, and William Reeves, shown here, and later Robert Atkinson and Whitley Stokes all publishing serious papers in the transactions and proceedings and participating very much in the work of the Academy. They fostered Irish scholarship and supported the library collections and the work of the librarian. We mustn't forget also that 50% of the membership then as now was composed of scientists, so there were also the scientists busily at work here in the Academy. Now, the librarian whom you saw earlier was from 1861 to 
John Thomas Gilbert, who'd been elected to membership in 1855. Historian and archivist, secretary to the Irish Society, inspector for the Historic Manuscripts Commission in Ireland, and sometimes secretary to the Public Record Office, Gilbert was a strong advocate for the preservation of public records and the publication of accurate editions of records and manuscripts for research purposes. He catalogued Dublin Corporation's charters and documents up to 1800 and produced many other works. But in a, a key thing he was responsible for were, were the Historic Manuscript Commission's facsimiles of national manuscripts of Ireland. And this set the scene for later work that was done in the Academy. As Academy librarian, Gilbert served under a number of presidents and he was a member of council from 1856, practically till his death. He served on the Antiquities Committee till 1870, and when it merged with the, with the Committee of Polite Literature at his and Wilde's suggestion. He also served on that committee until his death in 1898. He was an active member of the Publications Committee, the Irish Manuscripts Committee, the Library Committee and a whole plethora of other special committees. Thus, he was well placed to promote the acquisition of books and manuscripts and the cataloguing and indexing of these and other collections, as well as the publication of manuscripts in facsimile format. As librarian, he oversaw the reception of the Halliday Collection, the Stowe Manuscript Collection, the John O'Daly Manuscripts, the William Smith O'Brien Manuscripts, the John Windle Manuscripts, so important for um, our knowledge of the workings of the Olungon family, um, the Ordnance Survey papers, the Larkin Bequest, the Charlemont manuscripts, and a whole range of others. He supervised the arrangement of the Beatham collection of Irish manuscripts purchased in 1851, the Alexander Halliday Entomological Collection, the Petrie drawings by Margaret Stokes, and of course, here for us a very important, the indexing of O'Curry's manuscript catalogue by Joseph O'Longon. He was the prime mover be behind the cataloguing and indexing of the Irish manuscripts, his motivation being pragmatic. Well-indexed manuscripts would facilitate scholars and avoid duplication of effort. He was a practical man. O'Curry was the chief scribe, this is Eugene O'Curry, and manuscript cataloguer from the 1840s until his death in 1862. He was assisted by a man called Owen Connellan, who hailed from County Sligo and was a protege of Sir William Beatham, Ulster King at Arms, Academy member and manuscript collector. Connellan transcribed, edited and translated texts and he produced grammars and other works. He transcribed the Book of Lecan and Ballymote, for example, and produced a version of the Annals of Ireland, which was soon superseded by John O'Donovan's magisterial public ed edition. Connellan was appointed to the Chair of Celtic Languages and Literature at Queen's College Cork in 1849 where he incurred the displeasure of the college president, Sir Robert Kane, another academy member, who complained that he had never discharged his duties. He actually never gave a single lecture in Cork. And when, when Kane um, found out about this, he was livid 
and um, he um, he challenged uh, Canellan that he hadn't fulfilled his duties, um, and Canellan pleaded um, that extreme nervousness of lecturing in public would be a risk to his health. He actually implied, uh, you know, that it would kill him. Um, so. Uh, Anyway, tensions were very high and only the intervention of the Chief Secretary's Office at Dublin Castle affected a resolution of the matter. Connellan uh, held a sinecure at Cork in 1863 um, and he died in 1871, but he continued working as a scribe for the Academy when Joseph O'Longon was appointed in 1865. He had really no small sense of his own importance as attested by this extract from a letter of December 1867 to the Academy's Irish Manuscript Committee, which I really can't resist um, uh, reading to you because, uh, but I, because it talks, it really gives you a sense of the measure of the man, but it also makes a couple of interesting points about um, the, the view of the scribe. Um, Sir, I'm quite sure that the professors at Queen's College Cork would not sanction any member of their body should be styled a scribe. This is where they were, Academy was trying to call him scribe. And as I feel bound to uphold the rank of a professor to the best of my abilities, I beg leave most respectfully to decline this title. As the words transcribing and translating are mentioned in the order, this was from the council, perhaps the term translator may be applied to me, in which capacity I've been actually engaged during my employment at, at the academy. This then was the milieu in which Joseph O'Longon found himself in 1865. Um, one can imagine he was transported from County Cork to Dublin into this setting where there was a lot of tension and um, and some acrimony and general um, goings on in in um, in the works. As we've heard from Maeveen Neordal already, Joseph, born in eighteen seventeen, the youngest of Miholo Golongoin's family, had been engaged in national teaching at Whitechurch, County Cork where a visiting inspector commented in 1864, teacher appears deficient in energy. He is pretty constantly employed in transcribing Irish manuscripts, which may interfere with his proper vocation of schoolmaster. And I think really that says it all. His true vocation was as a scribe. Joseph completed many commissions over the years for John Windle and others in Cork. He also indexed Bishop Murphy's manuscript collection at St. Patrick's College in Maynooth. Like his father and brothers before him, he lived most of his life at a subsistence level, striving to support a family and his brothers at times. His correspondence with Windle, held here in our extensive Windle collection, attests to the Alungon family's constant struggle against penury. In particular, his letter of 1849 at the height of the Great Famine paints a vivid picture. I hope you will excuse me for troubling you this time. I certainly would not, but for the following reason. Myself and my brothers are writing five manuscripts for my friend Phillips. We would have them finished in about 10 days. 
but that all our means of support at home are out. Paul has received from his scholars whatever trifle was due. My brother Peter is teaching a sort of private tuition at a farmer's house near home. His means are long ago exhausted. And as for my own earnings, in truth, it was too little for myself. Yet out of that small sum, I need to spare a little. Now, if I had won five shillings, that would buy a half hundredweight of India meal. It would enable me to finish these manuscripts for which I'd be certain to receive about £10, a price which would enable myself and family to weather out this bad year until we would have enough of our own corn. I would pay you honestly as soon as Paul would have come, Paul would have come home or in the translation of the Furbish DD, which I will complete as soon as I will have finished this vocabulary. So that gives you a sense of the very extreme circumstances, really, in which uh, they were trying to function. Olungon's engagement as Academy scribe was facilitated by an additional treasury grant of £200 to the Academy. The minutes of the Council of the 4th of December 1865 state It was resolved that Mr. Joseph Long be appointed Irish scribe to the Academy at the salary of £100 per year, subject to his agreeing to the arrangements to be made for his attendance, work, etc., by the subcommittee of the Council. (coughs) Excuse me. Of course, the Academy had prior knowledge of Joseph. There had been a number of communications with him previously, and his brother Paul was already engaged on indexing work at the Academy between the 1840s and his death in in August 1866. Joseph had written, for example, in December 1864, offering some transcripts for sale. Sir, the three works which I'm offering for sale to the Academy are as follows, and I'm paraphrasing here. One is a translation of 28 folios of Ogilv Nishan made by myself from the text in the Book of Lismore. Another, a translation of the life of St. Finchua of Brigovun near Mitchellstown in the county of Cork, also from Lismore. The third is a copy of Irish capital letters. It contains all the capital letters in the Book of Lismore, with specimens from the books of Lecan, Ballymote, Leourbrach, etc., together with specimens of letters from Donal O'Thivine's manuscript written in 1712-13, and a manuscript of John Murphy of Rathinch written in 1726. The two latter specimens are only intended to show the degenerate style of our modern Irish capital letters. The price of the three manuscripts is £10, yours, etc., Joseph Long. And the offer was accepted. Now, there is a corollary to that because in Cork, this letter, a similar letter, had been written to another person, actually the said Donal O'Thavine, um, prior to that. And um, this, you know, it came out, of course, that there was the same material was being offered to the Academy. Um, and it excited great interest because this third item that he mentioned, the Book of Cap- Irish Capital Letters, um, has been looked for by Padraig Mocoin, for example, 
in collections elsewhere, but he hasn't found it. And there was great excitement when it said here that the letter, the uh, offer was accepted. But to date, we haven't actually been able to uh, connect this to um, the manuscript having actually been received by the Academy. So that's a work in progress. The council minutes of later December 1865, I'll briefly just mention these, list the arrangements for regulating the business of the Irish scribe. His hours of attendance were for it to, be, to be from 10 to 4 on weekdays, except Saturday when they would be from 10 to 1. All the work of the scribe would be executed under the direction of a committee to be appointed by the council. This became the Irish Manuscripts Committee. That such work shall consist of transcribing, translating, cataloguing, indexing and collating Irish manuscripts and rendering assistance to the Academy's Irish publications. That the engagement of the scribe shall be terminated by, terminable by one month's notice, etc. And it goes on with that. But then um, the practical matter of where he would work was that desks and necessary accommodation for the scribe would be provided in the Moore Library and such arrangements made in that room as may enable him to carry on his work without interruption. And that room hasn't changed very much since those times. Um, it was further recorded that um, the committee appointed to su superintend the business of the Irish scribe um, would consist of the officers, Dr. Todd, Dr. Sullivan, Mr. Halliday and Mr. Harding. That every payment to be made out of the increased grant lately voted by the Parliament would be specifically ordered by the subcommittee of council appointed to superintend the work. And basically what this meant was that the two people working as scribes had to report on a monthly basis with exactly what they'd done. And this was voted through then for payment. It was noted that the descriptive catalogue of Irish manuscripts was a priority and this task was, as, was at once committed to Joseph. The first report of his output was on the 10th of January 1866, so he's only a month in post, when the librarian laid on the table work done under his inspection, and he had already completed 120 pages of the catalogue of the William Elliot Hudson collection. The bills for payment included £16.13 and fourpence to Joseph Long. In March 1866, Gilbert recommended that Professor Canellan and Mr. Long should discontinue their present work and concentrate on indexing the five volumes of the catalogue compiled by the late Professor O'Curry, as indices would expedite the continuation of the catalogue and prevent repetitions which would be unavoidable in the future, in their absence, sorry, and this proposal was adopted. At the same meeting, a letter was read from Joseph dated the 13th of March, in which he states that he's transcribed on parchment 25 folios more of the Book of Lismore in order to complete my copy of it up to where the cork portion begins. I will sell these 25 folios for £10. This will include the price of the parchment, which cost 18 shillings. The committee agreed to the purchase. So as you can see, um, you know, scribing on, of his own accord wasn't without a cost to him. 
and um, he usually needed to recoup the funds pretty quickly. Um, there is a whole section over there in one of those cases on the saga of the Book of Lismore and the the versions of it and the copies that were made and so on. So I won't go into that in great detail, but just to say there is more over there on that. There had been an earlier missive from Joseph to the Academy in relation to the Book of Lismore in, in 1862 where he says, I've been thinking as Mr. Curry's paper copy of the Book of Lismore is incomplete. This was a copy that that Eugene O'Curry had made of the Book of Lismore, which lacked, uh, which, which lacked certain folios, which had been removed by Donnacko Flynn, another person in Cork. And um, they were eventually brought back and re replaced in the Book of Lismore. But the thing is that um, uh, what O'Curry didn't know, uh, that information is in the um, the, the compass of uh, Joseph O'Longon. So what he's talking about here is copying the lacuna uh, for in, in, um, in Curry's um, copy. If they should think fit to do so, I have a paper copy of this. Um, that is of the cork portion, i.e. the lacuna, written on fine, thick, white paper, large paper line for line and letter for letter with the original, which I intend selling as I'm preparing to go to Australia. If they will buy it, they can have it for £9. And then he talks about other manuscripts. Now, I mention this because um, the, um, the this uh, threat of, of emigrating to Australia um, is one that um, features... A couple of times in uh, correspondence with Windle, um, and it's also mentioned by uh, Canellan in a letter to Windle that's in the collection. Now Canellan suspected <coughs> that Joseph was what he thought what he was really doing in mentioning Australia was he was upping the ante with the academy boys, as he refers to the academicians, and that he had no intention of emigrating. And in this instance, one thinks, tends to think that Canellan's observation was not wide of the mark. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, the Irish Manuscripts Committee in 1866-7 consisted of William Reeves, Joseph Carson, Kells Ingram, Gilbert Wilde, Graves, Sullivan, Charles Halliday and William Harding all heavy hitters in the academy. Apart from Joseph's cataloguing work, they were responsible for Canellan's indexing of the Beatham manuscripts in O'Curry's catalogue, for negotiating the printing of John O'Byrne Crowe's Brickrew and for signing off payment for the printing of the Thorn. In April 1866, they received a letter from Paul O'Longoyne proposing to make a copy of the Irish Lives and Headings in Volumes 2 and 3 of the Academy Catalogue of Irish Manuscripts for the General Index then being compiled, and this was accepted. Also, at, this, at that time, Canellan was contracted to translate the Book of Conquest, the Laurgavola, collating it with Lecan and Ballymote at a rate of £70 per annum. And he was to discontinue indexing. So that put the indexing all right back in the, um, in the hands of Joseph. 
By the time the committee met on the 12th of July, Pohl's indexing had been completed and he was paid along with Joseph and Connell. The committee resolved that in future they would meet on the first Thursday of the month and that each person employed in the department would send in an account on that day. Um, it was further of the work they'd completed and was further suggested that Mr. C- that Professor Connellan and Mr. Long be allowed holidays for a fortnight during the present summer to be taken at such time as would suit them. In August 1866, Pole was engaged to sort the index of the Irish lines in O'Curry's catalogue in alphabetical order and paste them down, the work to be supervised by Joseph, £5 to be paid for the job. But Pole died on the 18th of that month. As the months went by, the outputs of, o- of Connellan and Joseph were recorded. In general, Connellan's reports were rather verbose, with copious explanations as to why some work had taken so long, but O'Longon's reports, by contrast, were very concise. In January 1867, and this was a key thing, Gilbert approached Lord Romilly, Keeper of the Public Records at London, with the suggestion that given that so much work was being completed by Canellan and O'Longon under his supervision and that printing was part of the remit under the £200 grant, perhaps he would consider publishing desirable works in the Irish language in the Chronicles and Memorials of Great Britain and Ireland, thereby taking advantage of the outputs of the two scribes. This proposal, however, met with a rather frosty response from Romilly, who disputed that publication was part of the Treasury remit and anyway, any work of this kind would require his sole superintendence. In March 1867, however, the board, the minutes of the annual stated meeting record the following. The alphabetical index of first lines of Irish composition in the Academy Manuscripts catalogued by O'Curry has been completed by Professor Connellan, Mr. Paul O'Longan and Mr. Joseph O'Longan in three volumes. This work has been found of the greatest utility and will materially diminish the labour of completing the catalogues of our Irish manuscripts. Mr. Joseph O'Longan, the Irish scribe, is now engaged in compiling an elaborate and copious index of persons, places and matters in all the Irish manuscripts described in Mr. O'Curry's catalogues. It is in the highest degree desirable that special funds should be placed by the government at the disposal of the council to enable them to give to the work the con- to give the work of the contents of the of the chief Irish manuscripts in the collection of the academy in to, to publish them the editing of which might now be executed in a satisfactory manner the following month the committee noticed noted that Mr. Long, having had to go to the country with the object of recovering his health between the 26th of March and 21st of April, it was resolved that leave of absence would be agreed to. Nonetheless, O'Longon was back at the bench and reporting for reported on the 3rd of May that, um, so, you know, so he was, he was paid at his usual rate. In June, he was well in his stride, had completed a record 50 pages of indexing and collation, as well as a descriptive catalogue of the O'Connor Don's Irish manuscript, with translations of some parts thereof. This was loaned to the Academy for the purpose, and descriptions of Mr. Crofton's two vellum manuscripts. One of these was the 16th century 
copy of John of Gadsden's medical tract, the Rosa Anglica, which will be on display in our next exhibition. In July 1867, the committee received a letter from Joseph, again referring to the Book of Lismore. As the Academy have already purchased 92 folios, this is uh, uh, by this stage, of the Book of Lismore, copied on parchment by me, and as I am anxious they should have a complete, correct and faithful facsimile of the entire manuscript, my own handwriting, he now offered for sale more folios. And um, his copy, in fact, is on view over there. It's a very beautiful copy. Now, consideration of the purchase was deferred but a further letter to the Library Committee the following year um, was more successful. Meanwhile, um, a letter from Olungon was considered at the July 1867 meeting of the Manuscripts Committee, in which he, rec he asked that his salary be paid fortnightly rather than monthly, and this was agreed with. And again, there's always this question of money and needing funds. Um, he requested a fortnight's leave in, in August 1867 and in a second letter he wrote, I respectfully beg to state that I would like to avail myself of the chief excursion that will leave Dublin for Paris on the 6th of this month in order that I might see, might see the great exhibition etc. And I shall feel very thankful if you will be so kind as to grant me a fortnight's absence and also enable me to go by buying the 36 folios of my copy on parchment of the Book of Lismore. This is the same 36 folios that keeps cropping up um, annually, um, which he wants to sell to them for £15. If you grant me the absence and buy the manuscript, I'll visit those libraries in Paris in which Irish manuscripts are preserved and take a list of as many pieces as my limited time there shall allow, and on my return I'll present a copy of it to the Academy, hoping you will take this matter into your consideration. Now, of course, you probably know what I'm going to say next. The leave was recommended, but the decision on the purchase was again deferred. And I think it's a pity because um, it might have enabled um, Olongon to go to Paris, and goodness knows what he might have what he might have found of interest there. He had been abroad before. I mean, he'd been as far as London. He'd been in the British Museum, and he had made copies of manuscripts there. And I think it's interesting that for a person who came from really quite humble background, who lived most of his life very close to the edge. Uh, the borderline of of real poverty and so on, that he had that great, you know, esprit de coeur, really, that he would think of going to Paris at that date stage of his life and um, undertake um, visiting um, libraries and so on. There, I think he had a he had definitely great uh, spirit, uh, which seems to have lasted practically to the end. Now, <clears throat> eventually, it was actually um, W.K. Sullivan uh, who proposed and William Wilde who seconded the mon money being voted for the purchase of that um, infamous, by this stage in my book, uh, bo uh, Book of Lismore um, section. But um, by December of 1868, Gilbert was pressing very hard 
for a publication separate to the Academy's transactions and proceedings, which would focus on Irish manuscript texts and lexicography, and in January the committee agreed to proceed with such a series. By this time, O'Lungon was working on the Hodges and Smith catalogue, that's the catalogue of the enormous collection of Hodges and Smith manuscripts that the Academy had purchased. And this took him up to early May when he took a break to work on the first lines of the O'Connor Don manuscript and a description of poems which O'Curry had omitted in his transcript. By the second week in May, he was back with Hodges and Smith, and by November of that year, he was working on a table of contents to the Beatham catalogue. And then in addition, the committee ordered that he be directed to lay down in dictionary order the slips of the English in- index to the manuscripts for the letters A, B, C and D at a cost not exceeding £6. And he did this. That's actually a copy of one of his letters um, about the Book of Lismore. I just thought you might like to see an example of, uh, of his writing. He wrote, he was a very clear writer in both Irish and English. And of course, I'm not sure if it was mentioned in a previous um, lecture, but his father, Michal Og Olungon, had insisted that his, th- his sons um, receive a very good schooling in the English language and that they be competent in speaking and writing and understanding English. So they, um, they write, <coughs> Fairly faultless, at least Joseph does, uh, fairly faultless English, very clear. Um, That's a copy of, that's his copy of Lismore, which is on view there, which is a very beautiful copy, including, of course, the the capital letters from Lismore, which he's emulating. And so I'll come back to that one in a minute. We'll just stick with that, that for the minute. Now, um, <clears throat> I better hurry on. Um, the, he completed the work of the, uh, the dictionary slips. And um, in February 1869, he was paid £7 for cutting and arranging the slips as contracted, in addition to his usual salary. After that, he wrote title pages for the six volumes of the catalogue and spent five days compiling catalogues of the Beatham Irish manuscripts in continuation of O'Curry's work. He then indexed Irish manuscripts in library cases 23 and 24. So they are the manuscripts that all begin with that code number, uh, which are now, of course, in the strong room. And he paginated the manuscripts, lacking pagination, prepared unbound manuscripts for the bookbinder and prepared a catalogue of the McGowan Irish Thunera, manuscript 4A36, running to almost 90 pages, continuing to work all the time on Beat Them. So he was no slouch. By April 1869, he was working towards the lithography of Yarnahidra, which has already been described. And this, of course, was all part of Gilbert's scheme of having facsimiles, which had started out with Romilly back a few years before. Separately, he was paid £1.10 to copy O'Curry's description of Yarnahidra from the manuscripts catalogue. And in the following April, he was working on the Ljauerbrach lithography for which his work at extra hours was to be paid for rateably with his salary. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and alongside the preparation of Ljauerbrach for lithography, 
He was privately producing other material. In May 1870, he offered a translation of a medical manuscript to the committee for which they paid £2.10. Now, Joseph's contribution to the work of the Academy was acknowledged in the annual report of March 1871 in connection with the Catalogue of Irish Manuscripts and of the Leorna Hydra facsimile. The Catalogue of the Irish Manuscripts has been continued and the edition of Leorna Hydra promised in our last report has been completed and is now in the hands of the subscribers. We congratulate the Academy on the success of this undertaking, which reflects high credit on the two Irish scholars, Messrs Olungon and Olooney, this is Brian Olooney, through whose zealous labours the text of the original has been so faithfully reproduced. The historical and philological importance and arising out of this, the national duty of publishing accurate copies of our chief Irish texts appear now universally recognised. As a further contribution to this great enterprise, we've resolved to reproduce the valuable manuscript known as Liao Brack, and they go on in that vein. <clears throat> now, in November 1875, Joseph was given an additional payment of £25 to be paid from the Cunningham Fund in recognition of the laborious nature of his work and the time devoted to it. And two years later, his yearly salary was increased to £125. Overtime not to exceed two hours daily or four on Saturday, because he was really, I think at this stage, practically killing himself uh, working on the lithography and so on. From this, I think we can infer that Joseph's contribution to the scribal work of the Academy was undiminished. We know, of course, that he was working towards the lithography of the Book of Ballymote at the time of his death in February 1880. And this is the exemplar that he had begun um, on the Book of Ballymote. And I quote from, it's another page from it. Um, I quote the obituary here from the Academy Minutes because I think it's very moving, really. The late Mr. Joseph O'Longon, as he was probably the last, so he was among the most distinguished of the Irish scribes. He belonged to a family in which this profession was hereditary. The names of himself, his brother, father and grandfather, all of them acting in this capacity, are not likely to be soon forgotten. Many products of their skill and industry now lie in the Royal Irish Academy, but the most important work has undoubtedly been accomplished by Mr. Joseph O'Longan, who's just deceased. In his early life, employed as a schoolmaster in County Cork under the National Board, a service which, had he continued in it, would have entitled him to retire on a pension. He there made for himself a name as an efficient and trustworthy Irish scribe. During that period, we have in his hand a beautifully written copy of the Book of Lismore, together with many minor manuscripts in the Windle collection. On the death of O'Curry in 1865, Recte, Mr. Olongon was appointed to the post of Irish scribe to the Academy, which he's held ever since. During the early part of this period, we have from his hand the invaluable index of subjects and initial lines of the matters contained in the manuscripts of the Royal Irish Academy, a work in 16 folio volumes, which enables a reference to be at once made to almost any topic dealt with in the manuscripts. The work on which he was subsequently engaged 
was the transcription of the great manuscripts, Yarnahidra, Yarbrach and the Book of Leinster, all of which he completed. The Book of Ballymoat was little more than begun when his fatal illness attacked him. It is unnecessary to enlarge on the value of these important publications, but testimony may be here fitly borne to the manner in which Olungon's work on them was performed. It may be safely asserted that no one who ever saw him work doubted or could doubt his thorough earnestness in the performance of his task. The difficulty in his case was to prevent his overstepping the bounds of prudence in the work he endeavoured to get through. The Committee of Irish Manuscripts has had to intervene in the interests of his health and shorten compulsorily the time which he would have devoted to the service of the Academy, and his zeal was equalled by his rectitude. The conscientious spirit in which he patiently worked was evident to all who had anything to do with the direction of his labours. The salary which the Academy could give from the funds of their, at their disposal was but small in consideration of work so faithfully and loyally performed towards the Academy, and the Council feel that it will be only anticipating the wishes of the Academy in seeking contributions towards the support of the family, they were widow and three daughters, whom Mr Olongan's death has left entirely unprovided for. So they had a a collection and uh, there were quite some quite generous contributions mainly from council members and others um, the, the the largest contribution interestingly was from the reverend maxwell henry close the treasurer of the academy who uh, subsequently uh, gave a thousand left a thousand pounds to the academy for the irish dictionary what became known as dill um, and he gave 20 pounds uh, towards the collection, uh, which raised about £62, 14 shillings. Little more can be added to this fulsome notice, which I would say as well is interesting because it's the kind of notice that's generally reserved for or was in the past for members of, for very distinguished members of the Academy. So it was quite unusual that an employee would merit such um, an effusive obituary and I think it's very it's 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 very um, good that that did happen. Um, the library's holdings and the outreach strategy which Olungon's work enabled, work which continues under the aegis of Irish script on screen and the curation of um, um, exhibitions here by the library as well as these lecture series and the inauguration of a conference series on the great manuscripts of Ireland, which is going to be accompanied by a publication, a serial publication, Codices Exemi Hibernenses, focusing on the great Irish manuscripts, are all later products of all of that work, without which, uh, really, you know, they would have been much longer coming. However, it should be also remembered that the Olungon family are represented by well over 200 manuscripts in the collections, which were received via the Beatham, O'Daly, Hodgson Smith, Windle and William Smith O'Brien purchases, the Hudson collection, the Stowe Ashburnham donation and many others, as well as the work directly either bought by the Academy or done for the Academy. Michal MacPather, the um, the Scion of the, scry of the uh, clan is represented by 15 manuscripts. 
his son uh, Michal Og, shown here in a, in a, a kind of lithograph, um, is represented in 86 manuscripts. This is his Dunere. His grandson's pole in, 80, in 38, show, uh, Pather in 62, and Joseph in 64. This is another um, Michal Og one. Uh, it's on display outside in the flat case outside with a description of his of 1798, which of course in which he played a role. Um, <clears throat> and the great their great grandson, uh, Michal, son of Joseph, is represented by six manuscripts. And there are six further manuscripts considered to be in Olongan hands in the collections. And the collection is still growing. The most recently acquired Olongon manuscripts are two lovely volumes, one containing prose and poet and verse, penned in um, about 1820, the other a prose compilation dated 1833, both the work of Patro Lungon, formerly owned by Padre Goshokru on Shawak and purchased by the library at White's auction of September 2013. Appropriately, perhaps, the purchase was funded by the Seamus Heaney Spe Special Acquisitions Fund, a fund raised with the support and active assistance of Seamus Heaney, a man who recognised and valued the scribal tradition in a very deep way, not forgetting the contribution to that fundraising work by what I, who, he whom I call the unofficial Academy scribe, Tim O'Neill, whose scribing was no less enabling in raising that fund. Neither poet nor scribe could have imagined that on the very day that Seamus left us, as I was examining Pathro Longon's two manuscript, uh, manuscripts at White's, text messages came through to say that Seamus had passed away. I'd like to think that his lovely spirit hovered over the successful transaction um, in and these are uh, two examples of letters from 12K51, one of those manuscripts in Pather's hand. They're really uh, very fine works. So um, I'd like to just finish by dedicating this lecture to the Olongon family in Ungo, in almost the winter Olongon, Agsantairakt Ud, a dogshid, Ersona Skalari, a Honig in a Thank you very much.